welcome to you all and thank you to our praise team for helping out with the, the singing and the children are included in the song, first song there and nice to see them as well. Uh, some announcements, please check your announcements email that you got on Friday from Laura there and uh, we have some uh, birthdays today including Laura Beacom is today so happy birthday Laura, back in the back sound booth there. <laughs> And uh, Kira Ban on uh, Tuesday, David Becker on Wednesday. And coming up uh, anniversaries this week, uh, actually today, is Andrew and Julie Garden, so Garland. So a shout out to Andrew and Julie. You may have seen Julie on the keyboard there playing with the praise team this week. Uh, Laz and Samantha Stoltz uh, on Tuesday. And Henry and Susan Wiltz on Thursday. So a very happy anniversary to all those. And... Uh, uh, also, uh, read through, please, carefully the announcements uh, email. Uh, you'll see some things there. The uh, list of life groups or small groups has been expanded. So uh, in this time when it's kind of hard to connect, uh, please kind of find a life group to be a part of. As, uh, that's a way that church becomes personal, and we really become discipling one another when we're face-to-face -face in a small group like that. So check that out online. Um, also this um, Wednesday coming up, our church uh, passes out uh, food boxes, half a dozen food boxes once a month. If you know of people in the community that could appreciate a food box, especially at this time, please uh, let myself or Rick Housen or Gary Lyle know and uh, appreciate very much Gary and Marine putting those together each month. Um, that's it for announcements, and uh, it's my privilege today to introduce Thomas Bailey. Uh, Thomas actually is no stranger to here in chapel. He was saying he went to youth group here when uh, Jim Campbell was involved some years back. That's a year or two ago, I guess. Thomas works full-time at uh, Creation Ministries International as a speaker and event planner. He's also one of the co-hosts of the weekly TV show Creation Magazine Live. It's on YouTube, right? Can they find that uh, you know, on YouTube and check out some of their uh, episodes? Thomas has been a communicator most of his life, and since becoming a Christian in his early teens, he's had a desire to use whatever gifts God has given him to preach the gospel. He first pursued a career in theater as an actor with an eye toward directing and playwriting. His intention was ultimately to use theater as a means of evangelism. Years later, Thomas left professional theater and worked at a variety of other jobs. Sensing the call to preach, he pastored a local church for two years. While attending a CMI event, Thomas was impacted by the need for creation apologetics in order to uphold biblical authority and advance the gospel. This led him to him becoming a CMI speaker in 2014. So six years you've been doing that now. Thomas lives in Exeter with his wife, Gail, who's also a CMI event planner. They have two married adult children and two grandchildren. Thomas has a Bachelor of Education, a BA in Drama, and a Diploma in Ministry. And I've gotten to know Thomas in my years in Blythe in the past and uh, some of Thomas's family. So uh, maybe, can we welcome him here this morning? take this mask off, and uh, thank you for allowing me to do that. I'm waiting for somebody, of course, to tell me to put it back on. But uh, Well, you've already heard a good deal about me and uh, where I've been. I I did grow up in nearby Blythe, and uh, I get to 
speak in churches all over the country now. So it's rather fun to be in a place where I can say I'm from Blythe and pretty much everybody knows where that is. I don't have to explain that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I will update that, uh, that biography just a little bit. It's true, my wife and I uh, both work in the ministry uh, together as event planners, and uh, we've now been married for 30 years, just had our anniversary. We have two adult children who are both married. Our son got married uh, just about a year and a half ago, and we have two grandchildren. I, I think the last time I was here, we had one grandchild, so now we have double the fun, double the exhaustion. It's always a fun time when they come over. But I am here today as part of Creation Ministries International. Many of you are probably already familiar with us. How, how many of you know a little bit about what we do already? Basically, we are an information ministry, uh, an apologetic ministry. doesn't mean we're apologizing, of course. It simply means to give an answer or to make a defense. And in our case, we're mostly dealing with the book of Genesis and things to do with creation, origins, Noah's flood things of that nature. And we have two goals. Number one, we want to encourage you in your faith to let you know you can believe the Bible the way it's written, right from the very first verse. And we also want to equip you with information so that you can uh, talk to some of the skeptics you know in your life. You might have people in your own family or people you work with who are skeptical of what the Bible claims, probably because of things that they've learned in science class or in the media that gives a completely different uh, version of how the world began than what the Bible tells us. And so we want to provide you with information to have some intelligent conversations with those folks. As you're witnessing to people and they raise those objections, we want you to be able to carry on that conversation and give some answers that, uh, that line up with the Bible. To do this, we have offices in seven countries around the world We've been going as a ministry for some 40 years now, and we employ a number of PhD scientists to do research in this area to show how science really does support the Bible. Now, as an information ministry, of course, we have a website, and our website's fairly easy to remember. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> You're not actually supposed to see that view on the screen. But anyway, our, uh, our website's fairly easy to remember, called creation.com. Now, that's a great place to go for information that has to do with Creation Week, Noah's Flood, fossils, all kinds of scientific matters that come into play when we're thinking about the age of the earth and origins, things about DNA and natural selection and so forth. Uh, as was mentioned already, we have a TV show called Creation Magazine Live, and we just finished recording our eighth season. We do that here in Canada. All of the episodes, uh, as was mentioned, they're on YouTube, a number of broadcasters, but you can find them all on the website as well, along with uh, over 12,000 articles. Lots of great information there and, and an excellent search engine up at the top corner. If you're joining us online, you may want to take note of that website because I will be referring to it again a little later on. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about time. I think most of us are somewhat familiar with the concept of time. Some of us may be a little more conscious of it than others. But uh, I think we all have some idea of what time is. And scientifically speaking, we know that time is measured by the movement and relative positioning of celestial objects. 
A day, for example, is one rotation of the earth on its axis. A year is basically one orbit of the earth around the sun and so forth. And so by these movements, we're able to measure time. And of course, through history, we've always found ways to track time and, and measure it out and, and track the number of years going by. And, and we've had different ways through history of, of tracking that number of years. For example, I had a friend of mine years ago tell me he didn't believe the Bible was history because he said it doesn't have any dates in it. Well, I think he missed out on things like in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar or the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, right? We've always had ways of measuring time, usually in reference to some major event, whether it be the reign of a king or, or something else. And... We know that we are currently in the year 2020. 2020 CE for common era. And of course, there's BCE for before the common era. And before you get too worried, I'm pointing that out just to tell you that those are replacement terms that have been put in there to replace what we used to always say. BC, before Christ, and AD for Anno Domini. Latin for in the year of the Lord, right? Because for many hundreds of years in much of the world, we've been measuring our years, our calendar, according to that pivotal event in human history when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in order to, to pay the penalty for all of our sins and rose from the dead so we can have eternal life through him, by the grace of God, ascended into heaven. Such a huge event in all of human history that much of the world still measures our calendar by that, whether they believe in what happened or not. But what about AM? What about Anno Mundi, or in the year of the earth? How would we measure uh, the year if we go back to when the earth began? The age of the earth is a highly contentious and, and debatable issue in our world, even in the church. So let's go back to what the Bible says. You've already heard some of the verses that I'm going to refer to here this morning. Genesis 1 says in, in verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there we have from the Word of God... A beginning. In the beginning, God. So now what do we know? We know there was a beginning to the heavens and the earth. And scientifically, we know there was a beginning to the universe. But before that, there was already God, because God doesn't have a beginning. God has no beginning or end. But time and matter and space were all created right there at the beginning by God. And you notice the earth was there right from the very start. And then we continue through Genesis 1, and we hear a description of how God formed the heavens and the earth and, and filled it with various things, and filled the earth with vegetation and different types of animals, and eventually uh, man and woman made in the image of God. And then after those six uh, earth rotation days of creation, God rested on the seventh day. So we have a description there, we have a beginning and then a description of, of the sequence in which God filled all of that and finished His creation. And some would suggest that those six days aren't really literal days. 
But maybe they represent longer periods of time. Maybe Genesis 1 is, is poetry or it's an allegory of some kind. But actually, in the context of the Hebrew, the way it's written there, Hebrew scholars have affirmed that there's really only one way we can understand it from the text. For example, Professor James Barr from, the, uh, from Oxford University, he had this to say. He said, probably so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament in any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 to 11 intended to convey to their readers that creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. Now, this is an expert in Hebrew and Old Testament, but Please understand, he doesn't actually believe Genesis as real history himself. He doesn't necessarily believe that Moses wrote Genesis either. But he's affirming that it's very clear in the Hebrew that the author intended us to understand six literal days. And so if you're, you're possibly uh, thinking about maybe it, it, it means something a little different, millions of years perhaps, I've got to tell you, that's an idea that must be coming from outside of Scripture because it's not really in the text. Exodus 20.11 backs this up. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now right there in the Ten Commandments, God is giving us a description of why we're supposed to work six days, rest the seventh. It's because that's exactly what He did in creation. And He summed it all up, that everything was created in those six days. No room for any kind of an allegory there. So now we have a, a beginning, we have a description of, of, of how long it took God or how long He chose to take in order to create now the question is, how long ago did that happen? How old is the earth? Can we figure that out? Well, again, if we go to Genesis 5 and again in Genesis 11, we're going to find what are known as chronogenealogies. These are measured numbers of years given between a father to his son and from that son to his son and so forth. And, and you can add all that up. You can follow that chronology from Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham. And, and starting at, at when Adam comes along on day six here, you follow that chronology. And by the time you get to Abraham, you've got a span of, of approximately 2,000 years. Then we look at other biblical history and, and a few other sources, and we find out that Abraham was born most likely around 2000 B.C. So there's a world history, and according to the Bible, of approximately only about 6,000 years at our standpoint. James Barr affirms this as well. Again, he says, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to the later stages in the biblical story. So again, he doesn't necessarily believe it, but he's saying the author clearly intended to convey literal history here, not an allegory or anything else. And over the years, there have been a number of historians and scholars that have tried to calculate the, uh, the age of the earth or, or a date for creation approximately, and, and most of them tend to, to run in the thousands of years B.C. here. Some of them in the neighborhood of about 4,000 uh, or so before Christ. 
This one here, for example, is the one that is uh, commonly used in the Jewish rabbinic tradition ever since the Middle Ages. They've, uh, they've calculated, uh, of course, their dates according to creation, not so much as before Christ and after Christ. And, and they come up with 3760 B.C. Or another way to put it would be Anno Mundi 5780. So again, uh, using the similar chronologies, we come up with, with pretty much the same age of the earth as I've already mentioned. But I think most of us know there's another idea out there, isn't there? One that's very, very different. A different history entirely from what we read in the Bible. And, and it's one, really, that is born from something called naturalism. It's a worldview that says there's no God. And so instead, the, the entire material universe and everything in it created itself over time by natural processes and random chance. And you know it as part of it as being the Big Bang Theory. The idea being that somewhere around 14 billion years ago, there was nothing, and then there was a very tiny something which then exploded or expanded very, very rapidly. And, and then gases formed after a time, which then formed into stars. Nobody really knows how that could possibly happen. And then stars became galaxies, and eventually planets in our solar system and elsewhere began to form about 4.6 billion years ago. And then there's the notion that about a billion years after that, uh, the first tiny living organism came into being spontaneously from non-living chemicals. Nobody knows how that's possible either by natural processes. And then, of course, over millions and billions of years, the tiny organism became more complex and diverse till we had all kinds of different living things on the earth, and eventually modern man came along. All of that over billions of years. It's a very different timeline, very different history from what we read in the Bible. In fact, the sequence isn't even uh, the same. Now, I wonder if this has ever had any effect on people's thinking, on their worldview, or maybe even people's faith. Here's a, an interesting quote from an interview done with a famous author a few years back. He said, I was very religious as a kid. Then in 8th or ninth grade, I studied astronomy, cosmology, and the origins of the universe. I remember saying to a minister, I don't get it. I read a book that said there was an explosion known as the Big Bang. But here it says, God created heaven and earth in seven days, which is right. Of course, we know he actually created it in six days, but that's not the point here. This young man is noticing a very obvious difference from what he's being taught in science class to what's being taught in the Bible, and he's asking this minister, please explain this to me. Unfortunately, the response I got was, nice boys don't ask that question. A light went off, and I said, the Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes much more sense to me, and I just gravitated away from religion you're looking at that, you already know who we're talking about. I'll reveal that again in a minute. See what happened there? This young man ended up gravitating away from religion because his pastor didn't manage to give him a, a, a good answer to help him understand how we can understand the age of the earth scientifically within a biblical time frame. And so he got this idea that the Big Bang is somehow equivalent to science and the Bible something completely different, and he drifted away. You may have heard of this fellow, Dan Brown. 
fellow that wrote the Da Vinci Code a few years ago. Highly controversial book and movie that's basically uh, anti-Bible, anti-church, anti-God. Claims Jesus was just a guy, not divine at all. And he's written several books along those lines. Now, can you imagine how his life may have been different and maybe the lives of others who have read his work if that pastor had been able to give him a better answer, be able to point him in the direction of some evidence that backs up what the Bible says? Ask yourself what you might do if you're presented with that same question. So we have this obvious dichotomy here between those two different histories. And really, when we get into this, we're not even talking about science so much, but we're talking about history. Because in the scientific realm, we understand the concept of, of operational science, how to run experiments. You make observations and figure out the way things work. It's observable, it's repeatable, testable. But then there's this thing called historical science. That's an attempt to figure out something that happened in the past using uh, science as a means to find that out. But science is limited in doing that because you can't really run an experiment on something that happened in the, in the past. The farther back you go, the harder it gets. So you're really dealing with a history there, not so much science. For example, we might find a fossil that looks something like this, and what we don't find is a little tag attached to it, you know, something that says, Hi, my name's Parasaurolophus, or you can call me Para for short. I was born April 19th, 75 million years ago. That fossil, we can study that. We can dig it up. We can study certain things about its composition. But it doesn't come with that much information. See, scientifically, we can, we can study certain things about the fossil, and we call that operational science. But as soon as we start speculating on how long it's been there or how, long, how it got there, now we need interpretation. We have to interpret the evidence that we find. And those interpretations are always done within some kind of uh, worldview that we already hold. One scientist might, might put the millions of years on there because of holding to that billions of years timeline. A biblical creationist, on the other hand, would assign a date probably much younger than that and uh, probably say something that it had something to do with Noah's flood, and that's why it's buried in sediment. And so we get different interpretations dealing with the history of that fossil. Right? So it's important to understand that distinction. Because you see, the interpretation of billions of years of evolution and, and no God required for that, it's not hard to find that interpretation everywhere around us, is it? In school, and the media, and so forth. That's why ministries like ours exist. That's why we have a, a website. That's why we employ a number of PhD scientists to do the research so that we can provide uh, information from a different perspective and show how that evidence does back up what the Bible says. That's why we send speakers into churches, and it's also why we have a, an email newsletter known as InfoBytes. This is an email we send out from time to time that has just a little bit of our information in it, some of the key articles from the website, announcing up, uh, upcoming events, and so on. Now, Normally we uh, pass clipboards around to, to sign up for this. Of course, we can't do that today. So if you're interested in getting our emails from us, then after the service, just go over to the table here, and uh, you'll see a, a sign-up sheet. looks like that. Give us your name and your email address, and we'll start sending those to you. 
If you're joining us online, please go to the website, type in InfoBytes in the search, and just follow the instructions from there. I wonder if Jesus ever had anything to say about the age of the earth. Mark 10, verse 6, he said, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, he's really talking about marriage versus divorce, and he's talking to people who want to allow for divorce for different reasons. He's upholding biblical marriage as God ordained from the beginning. But he's pointing out from the beginning, God made them male and female. So let's dissect that a little bit. Now, we know from Scripture that Adam and Eve were created on day six, right, right during at the beginning in creation week. And from Jesus' standpoint, when he's saying this, that would be approximately 4,000 years after that happened. So that certainly looks like pretty much at the beginning of creation, doesn't it? Now, some would suggest, of course, that, that actually billions of years went by, or maybe even God used those billions of years in order to create. Well, if that's the case, in that timeline, what we find is that human beings, or modern humans, don't come along until about 200,000 years ago. Or the early ones about a million or so years ago. But that's very much close to the end of a timeline that's 14 billion years long. So which one of those do you think Jesus was referring to when he said, from the beginning of creation? Go back to Genesis 1.31. You heard it read already. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. After God had finished creating at the end of day six, he called that creation very good. There was no death. There was no decay, no disease, no sin. Nothing that caused him to call it anything other than very good. And you might be able to imagine what the Garden of Eden looked like at that time, how beautiful it would have been. But you know, if there's already been billions of years, evolution and all of those things going on before that, that means on top that garden is sitting on top of a bone pile already. It's a, at least a mile deep or more. And you've got all those fossils in there, all that death and suffering and disease that's associated with the fossil record. That calls into question the character of a god who would call that very good. But that's what you get if you put those billions of years in there. And we know how it really went. Right? We know from Genesis 2, for example, God told Adam of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Indicating that there wasn't any death in the world up until that point. But there wasn't any sin up until that point. And we know what happened. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They sinned. That brought the curse of death into the world. Everything now dies because of that curse. Romans 8 tells us that all creation groans in futility because of that. And we yearn for a time when God will restore that very good world in new heavens and new earth. But in the meantime, we live in a decaying world and we're separated from God spiritually and physically we die as well. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 15 here when he says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive drawing a, a direct correlation between Adam, who sinned, and because of that we all die, the wages of sin is death, and all who and all sin and fall short of the glory of God, because we all inherit that sinful nature. So something needs to be done, right? 
Here we are with Adam. He sins. Death comes into the world. We're separated from God. And that's why Jesus needed to come into the world. That's why we need a Savior to die on the cross and pay the penalty for those sins for us so we don't have to die as long as we have faith in Jesus. See, we can, we can appropriate his righteousness. So there's an obvious correlation there between that Adam and Jesus. But if there's billions of years in there and death happened before Adam even came along, then, then that would mean that death is not the result of sin. And if death isn't the result of sin, why do we need a Savior? Not only that, if God used evolution to get that far, it even calls into question whether there really was an Adam and Eve. And atheists understand this. You've heard of H. G. Wells, probably. He's a well-known author as well as an atheist. He said if all the animals and man had been involved in this ascendant manner, then there had been no first parents, no Eden, and no fall. And if there had been no fall, then the entire historical fabric of Christianity, the story of the first sin, and the reason for an atonement collapsed like a house of cards. He may not believe what the Bible says, but he understands that if evolution is true, then all of that theology goes away. It doesn't make sense anymore. And of course, there's implications to that, isn't there? If we begin to believe in a, a worldview that excludes God, I wonder what would happen in our worldview and in our world. Another atheist, P. Z. Myers, put it this way. He said, first, there is no moral law. The universe is a nasty, heartless place where most things wouldn't mind killing you if you let them. No one is compelled to be nice. You or anyone could go on a murder spree, and all that is stopping you is your self-interest. Why? Because if there's no God, then there's no ultimate moral authority. There's just whatever we decide is right and wrong. And yes, we live in a world where all of this stuff goes on, but we know it's not always going to be that way. But if we, if we accept evolution, then that's pretty much what we're stuck with. You know, there's a number of uh, well-meaning theologians over the years who have tried to put the two ideas together, you know, try to accommodate everybody, and uh, usually they will try to slot millions of years in between those first two uh, verses in Genesis, known as the gap theory or they'll try to spread them out over those six days. Now, you notice they're not trying to put millions of years in after creation week, because we've already seen there's no uh, room there in that history for that. But all of those attempts to put the millions of years in there have the same result. They all put death before sin. They all undermine uh, some core theology in the Bible. Of course, the reason they're doing that is because of what geologists came up with a couple hundred years ago. They started to say that the layer of rock we see around the world took millions of years to form very slowly and gradually, one on top of the other. But you've probably seen something like that in a textbook with many millions of years described to those various layers. And then, of course, the notion is that the fossils we find in those layers were, were the things that were alive at that time. And so evolutionists would say there's a progression from simple to complex. Actually, not that simple at all, but we don't have time to go into that this morning. The other problem is that layers of rock don't always form slowly and gradually. I'm old enough to remember when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. Anybody else here willing to admit? Never mind. Three distinct events happened there to form these 
huge layers of rock you see there. That's, that's a canyon wall we're looking at, and it's about 130 feet high. And three distinct single-day events formation of those major layers of rock each in a single day. The middle layer is 25 feet thick, containing a lot of the fine layering known as laminae. Normally, one or two of those layers form slowly over the course of a year, and, and we see that. But in this case, those 25 feet thick of those fine layers formed in only three hours. So we've seen layers of rock form very, very quickly. And flume testing has been done to test this idea. If you take a, a, an amalgamation of a whole lot of different types of, of sediment churned up in fast flowing water, what will tend to happen is that the different grains will sort themselves by size and weight. So what you end up with in that flowing water is multiple layers of different kinds of sediment forming simultaneously from one side to the other. Not one little layer on top of the other like we've been taught. And that's something we can see happening on the ocean floor. And it's certainly something we would expect to find in an event where there was a lot of water all at once. I mentioned there's a canyon there. The canyon also formed very, very quickly in a single day. And we've seen other examples of canyons that have formed very quickly within days or weeks. But no one has ever actually seen a canyon form over millions of years, like we've been told. That's really an assumption based on millions of years uh, worldview on the happening from something like a global flood like the one we read about in Genesis now some would suggest that Noah's flood was just a local flood uh, even those that are trying to put the millions of years into the Bible end up saying Noah's flood had to be a, a local flood because they want those layers of rock to represent millions of years but what's the Bible tell us about it in Genesis 7 the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all, excuse me, all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So this is water covering all the mountains under the sky to a depth of more than 20 feet. That's not a local flood. What's described there in those three chapters is global in proportions. And even, even people like Professor Barr, we mentioned earlier, he also affirmed that the Hebrew is very clear. This was meant to describe an actual event. Jesus refers to it in Luke 17. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, in talking about his second coming, a to come, he's saying it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah, because he understood Noah's flood was a real event, real history. So we go back to that timeline again, and you've got that very good world, which is now messed up because of Adam's sin, everything now dies and decays, and then about 1,600 years or so later, God judges the earth in a global flood. And from that, we can attribute the vast majority of those sedimentary layers of rock that are full of fossils. Makes perfect sense. And you don't need the millions of years. You don't need death before sin. One thing we know about fossils is that they have to be buried rapidly to be fossils. Otherwise, they decompose and they get picked apart. Right? And there's all kinds of examples of this through the fossil record of rapid burial. Here's an entire school of fish 
that was, uh, they're actually all fossilized in that position, in formation, all facing the same direction. How does that happen? You know, if they all die one at a time and they gradually, you know, covered in sediment. Something must have happened to bury this entire school of fish very, very quickly. Here's another one. This is my favorite. Well-preserved ichthyosaur here. But if we look closely, this is really two ichthyosaurs. This is a mama giving birth. They're fossilized in that position. Millions of years. I know the ladies are all thinking, no. Something happened to bury these specimens very rapidly. And we find that kind of rapid area all through the fossil record. We also find things like soft tissue in dinosaur bones, blood cells and proteins and even bits of DNA, things that scientifically we know degrade very, very quickly. They don't last millions of years. We find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. Well, that may not sound strange, but carbon-14 has a short half-life or decay rate. It's actually undetectable after 50 to 100,000 years. There's no way there should be any in a dinosaur bone if it's millions of years old. On the other hand, if it's much younger than that and perhaps got buried in a, a global flood or something like that, that makes perfect sense. Now, there are other types of dating, or radiometric dating, that are used to date not the fossils but the rocks themselves. You may have heard of that. And uh, these actually require of assumptions, and there's actually a lot of problems with that dating method that, that uh, most people aren't aware of. You can uh, find out more about that in a DVD called Radioactive Dating in a Young Earth by Dr. Jim Mason. See, scientifically, there's a number of ways we can use to try to estimate the age of the Earth. I would recommend go to see what the Word of God says and find eyewitness accounts about world history, but scientifically, can estimate certain things. But all the methods we use to estimate that require assumptions about things that we don't know because we weren't there. For example, we could measure the rate of continental erosion in the world. And we can measure that over time that the average height reduction for all of the continents in the world is about six centimeters for every thousand years that they got gradually eroded into the ocean. That doesn't sound like a whole lot, does it? <laughs> right? But... If we extrapolate that out, we end up it only take about 10 million years for all of the continents to be completely eroded into the ocean. That isn't anywhere close to the billions of years we're told for the age of the Earth. And there's the magnetic field of the Earth itself. We've been able to measure that for the last couple hundred years, and we find that it's decaying at a rate of about 5% every century. And it was about 40% stronger 1,000 years ago. Now, again, that may not sound like a whole lot, but if we do the math, it means that the Earth can't be more than 10,000 years old. Otherwise, that field would have melted the Earth at that time. There's all kinds of ways we can use to estimate the age of the Earth that don't give us anywhere close to billions of years, but the most popular one is the one that gives us those billions of years. You can imagine why. Because the folks doing those measurements want to keep God out of the equation, so everything had to happen slowly and naturally and evolve over that time frame. Paul tells us in Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Since creation, we've been able to look at what God created, even in its fallen state, and see God. And how much more today, with everything that we know about the cosmos, about DNA and everything else, we should be able to see incredible design and intelligence, and we know who, that, who to attribute that to, the God of the universe. But that other idea does lead people astray, like it did with Dan Brown. And you've probably heard the number of young people leaving the church over the years. A Barna study just a year or two ago found that 49% of church-going teens say that the church seems to reject much of what science tells us about the world. And when they're thinking science, they're, they're thinking Big Bang, they're thinking evolution, they're thinking those billions of years. It's what they've been taught science tells us. And it's very different from what the Bible says. Unfortunately, in the church, we've not always been very good at, at backing up what the Bible says with some actual evidence. And yet ours is not a blind faith. It's evidence-based. It's based on eyewitness accounts of actual things that happen in history. We did a bit of research on this uh, of our own a few years ago. We uh, produced a DVD called Fallout. And as part of the DVD, what we did is some interviews with students on a college campus. Go. Creation or evolution, which do you believe? Um, I'd probably have to say evolution. Evolution. Uh, evolution. Is there any powerful argument that makes you think evolution is true that causes that confusion? Um, I think the studies that have been done on uh, apes and monkeys are pretty compelling. I think that the you know genetic sequence can change over time, over millions and billions of years. Uh, mostly fossil records and just databases of really just the fossil records. In your church background, were you ever exposed to any scientific evidence for creation by your church leaders, pastors, anything like that? Definitely not. Nothing in particular, no. Uh, no, I don't believe so. Do you uh, still attend church today or, or not anymore? Um, only for holidays. We kind of stopped going together as a family. but. Did your church leaders, student leaders, bring in any creation teaching that showed you there was scientific evidence to support the Bible's account of creation? Uh, yes. Yeah, we learned a lot about different um, creationist scientists and the proof of young earth creationism. What are you studying now? Biology. Biology, right. Steeped in evolution. So, uh, But you're not convinced by the evolutionary arguments in your biology classes? No. Still attend church today? Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah, every Sunday. Would it be fair to say then that being able to discuss creation openly at church uh, has helped strengthen you in that area, prepare you uh, for what you've learned here at college about evolution? Yes. Of the world. So you can see how important it is to be able to have those conversations that we mentioned earlier. And you already heard this scripture before, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we certainly want to share testimony and share the gospel, but along the way, people are going to have questions. 
And we're supposed to be able to give an answer when they ask us those challenging things to do with fossils or DNA or distant starlight, all of these things that keep coming up. And that's where ministries like ours come into play. That's Ultimately, we want people to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but there are these stumbling blocks along the way. So our, our position in the body of Christ is to uh, help the rest of the body of Christ in order to, to be able to uh, clear those stumbling blocks. Now, if you're joining us online, I'm going to mention some resources for the next couple of minutes. You can access all of those online at creation.com. And if you're here with us this morning, everything's over here on the table that you can uh, have, have a look at on your way out. Our number one equipping tool is Creation Magazine. It uh, comes out every three months. It's a family-oriented magazine. That, uh, it's cutting-edge science that comes out, uh, you know, deals with it from a, a biblical perspective, you know, something you don't find in most science magazines. The articles are short and easy to read, and, and we get testimonies from around the world from people who have been lent one of these magazines, came to believe the Bible really is true, and ultimately put their faith in Jesus as a result. That's, that's the testimonies uh, we look forward to hearing. Now, it's a recurring subscription, so you sign up for it once, Payments come automatically every three months from a credit card or a bank account, and uh, you don't have to worry about renewal notices later. Just give us a call if you want to cancel it later on. $7.50 every three months, you get a hard copy of the magazine, a digital copy in your email, and uh, if you're here today uh, and you want to sign up, we'll give you your first uh, magazine or your first hard copy here this morning. It was a free DVD as a sign-up bonus. There's some over there by the door that you can access. If you're online, simply go to Creation Magazine on the, on the web and, uh, and follow the instructions there. For those who are here, you'll see forms that look like that, that are right beside the InfoBytes form I mentioned earlier. And if you want the magazine for yourself or someone else, simply fill it out on both sides. Name and address on one side and payment information and a signature on the other. Again, you don't pay anything up front. Our ne my next favorite resource is Creation Answers book. It answers over 60 of the most asked questions that people have about Creation Week, about distant starlight, well, how did all the animals get to Australia, all these things that keep coming up. A good philosophical companion to that is Christianity for Skeptics. It examines Christianity in, you know, in comparison with other worldviews like Eastern religions, Islam, and even atheism compares them logically. Really good book to have. You're dealing with somebody from a different background or maybe they're looking at other ideas. For the, some hardcore science, you can look at Evolution's Achilles Heels. Nine PhD scientists showing how the evidence that evolution has put out there for their argument, whether it's fossils or, or DNA studies or natural selection, shows how scientifically they don't work. And uh, another version of that, in a sense, is refuting evolution. This is more for a, a high school level, because what it does is it refutes the key evidences that are going to be taught in high school to try to prove evolution. Valuable resource to have if you, if you know anybody uh, studying at that level. And we mentioned the age of the earth uh, quite a bit this morning, so a great for that is what the Bible and science say about the age of the earth. It was much more in-depth on, on that uh, than, than I was able to do this morning. We had the Genesis Academy. It was mentioned of life groups earlier this morning. 
This is a 12-week small group study that we put together that examines the key aspects of those first 11 chapters in Genesis. Week by week comes with a a study guide, and we've already had churches ask us and pre-order this uh, for their own small group studies. Of course, we have children's resources. We want to equip those children with, with answers at a young age. But you know what? Hey, if you don't want to spend any money, go to that website. Remember all those articles? Remember the videos that are available? All of that information is available right there at creation.com. You can come talk to me on your way out uh, this morning after the service is over. But uh, for now, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much for your love for us and uh, and how you have... uh, made it possible for us to be reconciled to you by your own Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in your own creation, in your written word, and and most of all, through your Son. We ask that you would uh, equip us and embolden us to to share the good news of your gospel with, with the rest of the world and to be able to have those conversations when they come up. We ask that uh, you would go with us now and strengthen us in Jesus' name. 